Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, we sit with Bucky from Cosmos to talk about testnets, what they are and what purpose they serve, using examples from Bitcoin, Ethereum, Cosmos, and Polkadot. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome back to uh, another episode. Today, we have Anna, as usual, and we also have Bucky with us. Can you give us a short uh, intro to uh, yourself? Hi guys, uh, I'm Bucky, uh, also known as Buckster, also much more widely known as Ethan. Um, there was another Ethan at our company, so we retired the first name permanently, uh, and now all Ethans have to go by some variant of their last name. Of course, that company, if you're not familiar with me, is um, Tendermint. We are a uh, blockchain company that have been around since 2014. We have the leading implementation of a Byzantine fault-tolerant consensus engine, also known as Tendermint or Tendermint Core. Uh, and we are now focused on building a public proof-of-stake cryptocurrency network on top of that consensus engine called Cosmos. Uh, and the goal of Cosmos is to be one of the Internet of Blockchains projects that connects many different blockchains with uh, different kinds of cryptocurrency applications, um, to each other to to really promote flexibility and scalability in the wider world of the blockchain and cryptocurrency community. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about test nets. And we're going to be looking at a bunch of different test nets that have already come out and maybe some that are coming out. And um, yeah, we're really happy to have you here to talk about this with us. Cool. Excited to be here. So maybe to start, what is a test net? What is a test net? Uh, well, a test net is, uh, like the word, uh, a test network or a network where some application is being tested. Um, this is, you know, a very common phenomenon in the world of uh, production internet services to have some kind of um, testing or sometimes known as staging deployment. So before you push your software out to production, you put it into some kind of staging or testing mode so that you can actually test out the features in an environment that is as close to production as possible. So in the blockchain world where people aren't putting out, you know, web applications or just kind of normal software served up on um, some company server, but they're actually putting out decentralized networks. This phrase testnet has emerged to describe this kind of non-production, uh, non-economic environment in which the various features of uh, the given network, whether it's some kind of blockchain or cryptocurrency application, are being rolled out and tested. So question about testnets. Do all blockchains have them? All blockchains worthy of your consideration. Yes. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about, so does Bitcoin have a testnet? Yeah, Bitcoin has a testnet. I actually think they have a, a couple of testnets. I don't know them very well. I know I know at least one of them uh, because I've used it a little bit. Um, and it's a place where you can test out Bitcoin transactions and the Bitcoin scripting language and get to know it without wasting your hard-earned or hard-won or hard-bought uh, Bitcoins. I think an important thing to cover with testnets is that it's not necessarily like an officially sanctioned thing that somehow this is a testnet. Like Bucky said, it's it's uh, supposed to be a replication of a production environment, but without value. So I can start a Bitcoin testnet today if I want. I just start a Bitcoin node with a different parameter and start mining on that chain. And I call it a testnet. So what makes it a testnet is really just that there's some social agreement on, okay, this is the network, this is the configuration set that we're going to use to test our Bitcoin stuff. That's right. And yeah, I think I think there's like three Bitcoin test nets or something, but as far as I know, there's like one popular one. 
Are they, are test nuts, do test nuts tend to be different? Like, are they significantly different from one another when it's on, when it's like a test net for the same protocol? So it depends. I mean, uh, at the very least, they are different in um, their state because they evolve according to a different set of transactions. They get mined by different miners or, you know, blocks get made by different validators, depending on, you know, whether it's proof of work or proof of stake. Um, so they certainly come to have different states. Some other things, like, for instance, the Bitcoin network makes sure that addresses are not reusable across different networks. So, you know, typically you see addresses on Bitcoin, um, they start with a one or with a three. Addresses on the testnet will start with different numbers or with with letters, actually, I think, um, to kind of differentiate so that you don't accidentally send money um, from a Bitcoin, from a real Bitcoin to a testnet wallet that you then can't access on the real Bitcoin, for instance. So there's there's a number of differences like that. And, and of course, the whole point of test nets is ultimately um, to test out new features. So, you know, in a in the world of kind of normal software development, say, you know, on Facebook or Twitter, if they want to roll out a new feature, they can kind of test it on some subset of their users. They can say, okay, well, we're going to roll out this new feature to this batch of users over here and see how it goes so that we can easily roll it back in case there's some kind of issue, you know, we're not going to deploy it globally right away. Of course, in the blockchain and cryptocurrency world, we don't have that kind of leisure because we're working with deterministic state machines under a consensus algorithm. So we can't roll out differences. Uh, we can't roll out new features to some users and not others because everyone needs to agree on everything at all times. And so if some users are doing things differently, well, then they're going to diverge from the rest of the network. So it's really difficult to roll out updates in uh, decentralized blockchain networks, as, as we've seen. And so the test nets provide an opportunity to do that in a way where the, the change can be rolled out across the whole network. But if there's some kind of catastrophe or if there's, you know, some issue or bug, um, it's okay. You can try again because it's just a test net. No one lost any money. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Ethereum test nets. Yeah, there, there's a lot of them, it seems, <laughs> and, uh, and varying history. So uh, there's three main ones. Uh, and it started with Robsten, which is just a proof of work test net, same kind of deal as the Bitcoin test nets. You just, someone started this up at the beginning of, of Ethereum's history, and uh, it's proof of work mined test nets. Uh, and it has its faucets and things, and we can get into what those are later. And then Parity had developed a con consensus algorithm called Proof of Authority. We wanted to launch a new testnet for that. So Coven was started. That's a Proof of Authority network and kind of just went into a chat channel. I think it was actually not even necessarily uh, like in initially like promoted by us. I think it was one of the companies we were working with who wanted it. And uh, yeah, went to a chat channel and said, hey, who wants to be a validator? And we had a dozen or so companies sign up to be validators. So uh, that's roughly who's been validating this testnet from the start. And um, then not very long after, uh, Geth wrote their own POA algorithm and uh, deployed the Runkeby testnet. So now we're kind of in this situation where there are three testnets. And the Coven testnet is still like, you know, mainly run by parity nodes or only as far as I know. Uh, and then, you know, that lets us kind of push out new features like the WebAssembly uh, runtime and various other like parity specific features. And the same thing with uh, Rinkeby and Geth. And, so, and then like Robson is the common testnet that we're all on and, you know, is uh, the closest replica of the production mainnet as possible. So just before you were talking about sort of testnets as a place where you can deploy things before you deploy them on mainnet. 
But the test nets themselves are also like the first version of a protocol. So when a protocol is being developed, like what is the process of launching in general? You always start with a test net and then you you launch it again as a main net. Like I'm just kind of curious what that process looks like mm-hmm. for a company or for a or basically a project. Yep. So uh, all the responsible uh or more responsible blockchain developers, cryptocurrency developers have been uh, running test nets, which are basically test versions of what will eventually be um, their main production network. And I don't think we've ever seen anyone turn a test net into a main net. Typically what happens is they'll, they'll spend a lot of time actually testing out all the features on the test net. For instance, Ethereum, before Ethereum uh, launched, they provided some incentivization so that people would be rewarded for doing certain gimmicky things on the test net, like creating the most contracts or mining the most blocks and so on to really incentivize participation. And sort of once once a testnet has been running for long enough and is, is deemed to be stable and enough of the features are developed and, and have been tested, that's a time when um, the developers in the community can decide, okay, now we're actually going to launch a main network um, using the same code that we've been running on the test network, but with a new initial state, i.e. the actual economic state of our blockchain, and then the main net will go up. And usually people go through several iterations of test nets, either like tearing the old one down completely and throwing it away, starting a new one, or slowly like evolving and hard forking the test net until it's at a point where, you know, it feels mainnet ready. Is it usually like a fork though? Is that is that usually the way a word w- would work? You'd have the test net developed to a certain point and then you fork. Sorry, so I was saying that, um, you know, they might fork to a different test net. So I've, I don't know of any case where anyone has like, fork the testnet to become a mainnet. So I think, well, I don't know about forked the testnet to become mainnet. Certainly forks, like when, when a blockchain is preparing for a fork on their, on their production network, they'll try it out first on their test network. So for mm-hmm. instance, when Bitcoin was rolling out SegWit, um, you know, the segregated witness change, that, that wasn't a hard fork, that was a soft fork, but they deployed it first on the testnet and, and tested it extensively for a number of months there before it made it to mainnet. And, uh, you know, the same goes for the hard forks that Ethereum has done and, and other hard forks that, that other blockchains will try. Of course, they would, um, it would be, uh, best for them to test them out on their test nets first to make sure everything goes as planned and that the actual, the actual changeover, um, logic works. So you sort of mentioned that legitimate blockchain projects will always have a test net. Are there actually examples of projects where there was no test net? No comment. <laughs> Yes, there are. <laughs> uh, we've kind of bashed them over the head a couple of times before on this podcast. So oh, yeah. I don't think we need to dig into it. I, I, I prefer to. Worrying. I prefer not to bash. But uh, as, as I said earlier, um, any project worth paying attention to will have a test net. So the ones that don't, I certainly haven't been paying attention to. So I have a question a little bit about like a user of a test net. How mm-hmm. do you actually interact with a test net? How do you work Great with question. a test net? Great question. Yeah, you have to you have to find it. So in in the same way with uh with a blockchain, you know, any any public um mainnet, you have to you have to have some way to find it. Uh with the test nets, it it's similar. So a lot of the the kind of main official software for a particular blockchain will have options for connecting to um the test nets and that that makes it um it makes it a lot easier, certainly. So, for instance, um, in Bitcoin, there are there are websites that let you uh, broadcast transactions to test nets, and I believe Electrum, one of the one of the main wallets, lets you also connect um, to the main test net and, and send transactions there. So, for instance, I, I teach a course um, on 
uh, kind of cryptocurrency smart contracts and how to write them uh, both for Bitcoin and for Ethereum and, and for um, and applications on Tendermint. And so for the Bitcoin examples, you know, to really demonstrate how this works with with live transactions that you can step through and actually actually see the execution of code, we use the testnet. Um, because it, I mean, it took me forever to get this stuff figured out because the Bitcoin scripting language is just so ar- arcane and difficult. Um, so, you know, bashing my head against the wall many times to make sure I could, I could actually make this thing work. If it was on mainnet, if I was testing it on mainnet, I would have wasted, uh, quite a bit of money. So on the testnet, yeah, you can use, you can use the wallets. They ha- they usually have options or there are some websites that let you broadcast, um, directly to a testnet. And, and similarly, similarly in the Ethereum world, um, I think MetaMask and I think my Ether wallet offer the ability to broadcast directly to, to testnets and some of the block explorers let you look at the data on testnets. But I mean, the, the, the other critical thing is to actually engage with a testnet, you need to have coins on the testnet. And so just because you have Bitcoin on the mainnet, that doesn't actually entitle you to do anything on the testnet because the state is going to be different, right? So you have to, um, you have to somehow acquire coins. And if, if it's a proof of work network, you might be able to mine coins directly by, by starting the software and pointing it at the test network and connecting to test network peers uh, and mining blocks. Or um, there are typically what are called faucets that are websites available online where you can go and request some number of coins um, on the test net. You'll, you'll paste in your test net address uh, and the faucet, if it's, if it's working and it still has coins in it, um, we'll send you some coins. And these are typically maintained by the developers of the project. And, and they'll often request that you don't abuse it, um, that you don't take more coins than you need. And that when you're done with the coins, you send them back um, because, because otherwise they'll run out and then other developers won't be able to use it. So if you plan on oh. using test nets, please be responsible. Uh, please don't take more coins than you need. And, and please give them back when you're done with them. Wow, you can run out? Sure. Well, I mean, there's only so many Bitcoins on a Bitcoin testnet. So if, if someone comes along and tries to take them all off the faucet, then... Then it'll run out. If you fork it, does it reset? If you start again? Yeah. Well, but Bitcoin started with zero Bitcoins and you had to mine them all, right? So when you're getting, uh, when you're getting coins on a Bitcoin testnet, they come from people who have mined them. Um, so typically the developers will be there, you know, mining lots of blocks and then setting up these faucets to enable other developers to work with Bitcoin. Of course, it's very easy to get to lose your Bitcoin on the testnet. Um, you know, like when you're messing around with contracts and trying to make them work, typically you'll get to outputs that, um, just can't ever be spent again because you messed up the script. And so, you know, those testnet Bitcoins or testnet Satoshi will be gone forever and you'll never be able to send them back. So, you know, it's okay to make mistakes, but uh, yeah, eventually it'll run out. I think the the whole faucet thing is a really interesting problem. And I mean, in the Ethereum world, like I said, there's three testnets. And one of the benefits of having a POA testnet is that there's full control over the, the coin supply. I mean, so you start the chain with some number of millions of coins available and usually it's equally distributed amongst the authorities or something and then the faucet software gets half of it or like the faucet address or something um, and various strategies so Rinkeby and Coven both have faucets that are more or less automated I don't actually know what the Robston faucet looks like or how it works or who maintains it but the Coban faucet, uh, we actually built a bunch of features to like have SMS and email validation, try to hmm. you know pr- prevent spam and people taking a ton of coins. Mm-hmm. But due to G- GDPR, we have to remove all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't test your blockchain uh, now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now it's more or less uh, come to the chat <laughs> channel on Gitter and ask for coins. For ask for coins. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Old school. Uh. <laughs> So talk, talking a little bit about, so the faucets, you can basically, you can get, I mean, you can get access to a lot of tokens. You can 
use them any way, which way you want to. Um, but what would incentivize, like when people are actually using a test net, you're trying to test out what could possibly happen, what could mm -hmm. be, what could go wrong. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, I guess you're also, you're trying to test out use cases mm -hmm. and possibly like attack vectors. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, a range of different users for test nets actually. So we've talked mostly about like protocol testing, basically for the core developers themselves to test that this network works and you know behaves as expected. Uh, like you might launch a testnet to, to see that peering works properly or that the, the VM doesn't crash. And in that case, you want people to like be trying to crash your VM and write a bunch of garbage code to try to crash it. Uh, but when like in a more mature environment like um, Bitcoin or Ethereum, we are now in a world where most of this stuff is not to test the protocol itself it's for developers to test their applications so it's kind of moving into this other sphere where it's they're not really testing the network as a you know protocol thing they're you know writing an application deploying it trying to test out a few transactions with their friends or whatever and uh, seeing if their their application breaks uh, so i think there's different classes of users and it kind of differs ba based on where in the life cycle of the blockchain you are. Both the core devs testing out the protocol and the dApp developers testing out their dApps, you're still looking for, you're still kind of like what you just said, like you want people, masses of people maybe to start attacking it or trying to break it, right? So I guess the question then comes is like, will they like how do you incentivize people to do that like sure you could probably like hire people mm. to do it mm. but when you want say you want a mob you yeah. want like a ton of people to come at this thing if the value if there's no value in these tokens like what mm -hmm. would they win if they hack yeah. it well the best way to attract the mob is is to tweet that the cryptocurrency you're working on will be better than bitcoin um, and that's basically a, a surefire way to attract uh, Bitcoiners to your testnet to try to take it down. Um, so that, that's really probably that's the, most, the most bang for your buck when it comes to trying to test your testnet. Uh, and and I, think, I think Ethereum saw some of that earlier on um, where, you know, people with, with massive uh, mining power came to the testnets and just overtook them and it became impossible to maintain them because there were some folks that were just very committed to, to taking the thing down. And so, so now most of them have moved to proof of authority to kind of to prevent that, right? Um, which is a shame because it means you can't actually test out uh, components that are dependent on mining itself. Um, of course, most of Ethereum is really about the Ethereum virtual machine, so that that doesn't matter too much. But um, it is it is a real problem that if you if you attract people that are really trying to take it down, and if it doesn't have the kind of um, uh, Sybil resistance or, or spam resistance that you have on the main net, it's going to be hard to keep it up. And of course, with proof of work, that's that's proven to be a problem. I think uh, we've talked a little bit about this problem on the podcast before, both in that there's no real incentive to attack the network and actually make something, you know, break. And you could you could potentially build those incentives in place. And I think that's a really interesting domain. Uh, but there's there's there are some things that you fundamentally can't test on a non-value bearing network. Like Bucky was saying, like there's, you know, someone who really wants to can always like dedicate a bunch of real world money in form of mining to break a proof of work like test nets. But even like uh, proof of stake test nets are, are like notoriously difficult to test because most proof of stake algorithms depend on slashing. 
And if you don't have economic value, then what does it matter if my tokens get slashed? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't care. So you can just, you know, ask the faucet for a bunch of tokens, become a really big validator, and then you misbehave and your tokens get slashed. But who cares? Like, you're you're just in it to grief. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. like, that will always be a problem. Mm-hmm. And it's almost, it's just not reflective of how people will actually act on the mainnet. So you That's are right. getting, in a way, like the wrong behavior. So you can test you can test code and you can test like the technical aspects, but you can't really test the crypto economics. It would be, it would be really cool, I think, if there was a way, if, I mean, you know, I, we've yet to see a project have the courage to do this or even to, to figure it out. It might be, might be quite difficult, but... To launch something that is somewhere between a testnet and a mainnet that is uh, expected to be experimental, but is also seen to have some value, you know, Mm -hmm. like let the thing trade, let there be some air that, you know, state might be reset or it's going to go down or it's not the real thing or we're going to modify the state later. But that way there's actual value on the line to incentivize people to come around. And, you know, if you can hack the thing, if you can break the thing, you can make some money. So I think that's a that's a really interesting model to explore that is is quite difficult and you know surely there will be regulatory challenges around it as well but mm. um kind of as the world of bug bounties and security audits uh, advances and kind of the role of the white hat increases in significance as as it's beginning to already um we may we may very well see um applications and networks like that and and in fact that was one of the use cases that we kind of proposed for for the Cosmos network was this idea that you could have an independent blockchain attached to Cosmos with some real value on the line um, that you could use as kind of a test bed for either new cryptographic algorithms or new virtual machines or or uh, cryptocurrency designs or what have you. And so um, we're looking forward to being able to enable that hopefully sometime in the future. This is something that we've been um, we've seen being toyed with on the Ethereum and like the Ethereum test nets as well, where uh, you could establish a bridge between the mainnet and the testnet and right. then move real ether from the mainnet to the testnet through the bridge. On the testnet side, you get like a wrapped ether token. But then in the testnet, you can like in your application. So this is not to test like the protocol level stuff, but for a dApp developer to like test their dApp. Mm-hmm. You can say, okay, I'm going to put a bunch of this wrapped ether locked up in this contract if you can steal it then you can steal that on the testnet and get the reward on mainnet. Take it back, yeah. And, and so you can actually, like, get some real-world value in, like, in Ether um, from breaking the testnet or breaking the app on the testnet. And you have more control over that environment, and you, you can, like, fine-tune this in a better way than you would be able to on the mainnet. And you're also, like, making this an explicit experiment rather than, like, Hey, here's my application in the wild. Either use it or try to break it. Like it's only try to break it, not try to use it. There you're talking about. So you're talking about bridging and actually like moving from one blockchain to another blockchain or one test or sorry, rather a mainnet to a testnet. Um, but you had rent Bucky. You mentioned earlier that like the in Bitcoin they actually have different starting numbers so that people are not directly sending Bitcoin at a testnet. Mm-hmm. But is there like what happens if you were to do that? What happens if you just send for, like actual token from one to another? Does it just go to nothing? Well, so it, so it depends. So um, without a bridge, without a bridge, yeah. So so in Bitcoin, the user facing addresses, like the string you see as a user, is different than it's kind of a, an encoded form of the actual address recorded on the blockchain, right? 
And so the reason they do that is to kind of is is to make certain things known to the user and to include error correcting code so the users don't accidentally send to the wrong address. And so there's nothing to stop you from going under the hood and trying to send um, to an underlying address. And the, this kind of testnet differentiator is really just at the user level, right? So that if, if you're a developer and you send to the wrong address, well, you know, that's that's kind of on you. Um, but as a user, it makes it, it makes it much more difficult. On Ethereum, there's no distinguishing factor on the address itself. So if you were to send, uh, like if you're in control of an address on mainnet and one address on the testnet, uh, because they have the same underlying key on both the mainnet and the testnet, if you send to that testnet address, you could actually use the same key to like still send that money back on mainnet. But you obviously wouldn't see it on the testnet. Uh, it just doesn't. So if show you up. like had one node connected to mainnet and one to testnet and try to send one to the other, the money would never show up. <laughs> but you could still recover it by using like porting over your key. If it's your address, but if if it's a if it's a contract address and the contract only exists, say, on the testnet, and you send to it from the mainnet, then that that f- those funds are likely gone forever. Yeah. So, Bucky, you guys just released a testnet. We did. Tell us a little bit about that. So we've been iterating on testnets for a long time now. Tendermint has existed for a long time, and Tendermint testnets have existed for a long time, and there there's many of them run by you know different people all over the world. But as we've been working on Cosmos. Um, we've been working on deploying test nets that, that contain the Cosmos feature set. And we call those test nets Gaia. Uh, the software that, that will run Cosmos initially is called Gaia. And so we've, we've been iterating on, um, the Gaia test nets and, and adding more and more features to test out both components of the underlying consensus engine, i.e. Tendermint and of the state machine that will run on the Cosmos hub. And so because the Cosmos network is a proof of stake cryptocurrency network, um, it's important that our test nets start to reflect that. And, and one of the things we're, we want to work towards is this sort of, um, decentralized genesis, right? This, this initial launch condition where, uh, you know, we're not the ones putting up the network, but there's a community of validators who are, are ready and able to start the thing. And so with our latest test net, we actually collected, um, we collected a list of, of over a hundred, uh, validators who wanted to participate. And so that initial Genesis file contained, um, 107 initial validators. Now we don't know that those are all independent entities or independent people, of course. Um, so, so there, there could be duplicates in there, but there were 107 independent public keys, say. Um, and then we, you know, we published that and, and people started starting up their nodes. And over the course of, I don't know, maybe it took 12 hours or so. Um, I think it was six hours or so. The thing came online once, uh, once more than, uh, two thirds of that 107 was available and online and, and signing votes on the network. Then the thing started making blocks. And so, so that happened, uh, yesterday and early yesterday morning and, uh, it's still running. Well, we had a, <laughs> we had a, we had, we had to do a take two. It, it, it fell over after a couple blocks because there was, um, we, we forgot that we had a limit of 100 validators and, and the Genesis had 107 and the software didn't like that. So it, it took a couple blocks to freak out, but then it was like, no, 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 that's not good. So we lifted that limit to 128 um, and tried again. And, and, then, and then the thing launched and it's up and it's making blocks. And so there's currently, I think, around um, 80 of the validators are actually online. The rest are just registered and not online. At some point, uh, in the next few days, the people who have not been online are going to get kicked out of the validator set. That's kind of how, how the Cosmos state machine works. If you're not signing enough blocks, uh, you'll get automatically removed. Of course, if you show up, you can send a transaction to get yourself, uh, added back in again. 
Um, but every time you get removed, you lose a little bit of stake. And so on, on the test net, we have um, a coin, uh, a, a test net coin that we call stake, S-T-E-A-K. And so everyone has been distributed some stake and they're staking that stake. And when they, if they don't participate long enough, um, they lose some of it. They get slashed a little bit. So um, as far as we know, this is, this is the largest deployment of a Byzantine fault tolerant network um, in history. We've got, like I said, around 80 validators live right now. They're distributed all over the world and they're making blocks every few seconds. Um, and this is, this is enabled by the kind of breakthroughs that, that the Tenement consensus engine has made in enabling, uh, consensus, uh, Byzantine fault tolerant consensus over a, uh, peer to peer gossip network without using proof of work. So, um, we're super excited about that. We actually just released a new paper about that on archive that has some of the details about how Tenement works. That's called, uh, the latest gossip on BFT consensus. So you can check that out if you want to know what actually makes this tick. Cool. We'll link that in the show notes. I think that's a really cool story of how you actually launch it. So there's obviously a lot of different launch stories that you can have, but the common factor in almost all of them is that you start out either centralized or super insecure. So if you start a new proof of work testnet, then you have like one miner at the genesis of it and it's super insecure. Any other miner who has more power than that guy can take over the whole thing. Uh, and maybe you can have enough like community to build up to try to actually have a lot of mining power to start, but it's not very common. And uh, like in in another example is the Rinkeby testnet. They started with just like the foundation being an authority on their POA network and then have added more validators over time. So now I don't think that um, I, it was fairly recently that uh, the EF is not the like majority authority in, in Rinkeby anymore. Parity started with 12, which is not that big of a number. And so, yeah, it's usually that it starts out pretty, pretty insecure or with a lot like few validators. So this model of like signing up a bunch of people and then actually having the software wait until the, you know, you reach this number of, you know, we're actually satisfying this requirement. And when this requirement is satisfied, defined in code, the thing kind of launches on its own. Yeah. It's a cool idea. So in the last one, I think we had, we started with about 20 or 30 in the Genesis file. You know, it was a pretty clumsy process to collect them. It's still a little, a little bit clumsy, but it's getting better. And then in the life of that last network, I think we got up to around 50 validators. And then, you know, we hit a bug and the thing crashed because we have this kind of fail fast coding practice right now so that we catch bugs sooner than later when invariants are violated. Um, we spent a couple of weeks kind of fixing things up and then and then we launched again. And now we have over uh, 100 validators and, and we'll see if the rest of them come online or they'll be kicked out. You just mentioned a previous testnet launch. Mm -hmm. How does that happen? Like, are you launching every few months? Like, what's what's that process? Yeah, so uh, we launch um, when we have a new set of kind of important breaking changes that have been added to the state machine or or have been added to Tendermint. And so in our in our first test net, we had some some basic, um, well, not our first, but a few test nets ago, one of the main, we've done a whole lot of refactors, right? So we've, we've had test nets with features, and then we did a big refactor where we lost the features and had to bring them back, right? So a few months ago, when we put up the Gaia 5000 test networks, uh, we just had some of the basic staking functionality. So it wasn't very exciting. And then in the last one, the 6000 series, um, it took us a few tries. So the main one was actually Gaia 6002. Um, and we had kind of more of the staking functionality. So they were, you know, people were getting unbonded, uh, kind of automatically and they'd get slashed if they, if, you know, they'd lose stake, if they double signed or if they, if they went offline. 
And so then for this one, one, once that one crashed, we already had a number of features, new features coming in place. Um, so this one has an even more complete staking model. So now you actually have to wait uh, for an unbonding period to get your tokens back when you unbond. And we also added governance um, for the first time. So now people can start making proposals and, and voting on those proposals. And we're hoping to be able to use that system to actually vote on the next upgrade to the testnet, which is yeah. something I believe I saw parity uh, or, or the Polkadot testnets are also are also at now as well. So that's super exciting to be seeing this happening, these testnets that are um, on chain voting to upgrade themselves. Uh, it's a very exciting wow. time. Yeah. Just a quick question. Do you reset the states in between each testnet or do you keep going on the same chain? So for the when we went from 5,000 to 6,000, we kept the validators from the previous one um, and, and some of the state, I believe, as well. Uh, we mutated it a little bit to get, you know, to reward some people or just to, to up the faucet count and whatever. On the new one, because there were so many breaking changes and we, we changed a lot of stuff, uh, we just started it from scratch again. But we're hoping that for the next one, um, we will continue from the latest state. And so that way we've kind of, you know, maintain what people have been working on and kind of keep up the decentralization of the test nets and, and hopefully to some extent are able to carry some of that into launch. Yeah, I mean, so Polkadot launched its POC1 test nets a while ago, a couple of months ago. I can't re- really remember exactly when, uh, but it launched with uh, some limited functionality as well. Like there's no smart contracts, but it has the, the fundamental like runtime in WebAssembly. And it had the governance system in place. And so, yeah, it was testnet. You could transfer around tokens. Uh, you could create proposals and vote on proposals. And that's more or less it. Uh, the whole parachain infrastructure was not there yet and still kind of isn't fully there yet. Uh, but yeah, so just a couple of days ago, POC2 was kind of finishing up. And I believe yesterday, the POC2 uh, testnet was kind of launched. Awesome. And yeah, it was it was interesting. So the the POC two two testnet launch in this scenario was not like creating a new network or or like even hard forking. It was here's a proposal to update the runtime to this, and then we updated like so the 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 old version zero point one of Polkadot could run the new runtime uh, for the version zero point two version of Polkadot, and so. Like we could actually do an on-chain upgrade of um, this runtime, so that you know there was a proposal, it was voted on, and POC two testnet was born on the same blockchain on the same state. Very cool. So the the governance thing worked out, and uh, we'll see. There might or might not. It's kind of unclear. Uh, be big enough changes in POC three because we're changing the consensus algorithm that we might have to launch a completely new testnet. Um, but yeah, it's it's an, it's an exciting, like this kind of testnet testing where it's actually protocol upgrades and it's like testing out whether networking works as it's supposed to. Like in POC2 now, we've switched over from dev P2P to live P2P as well. So we switched out the entire networking layer. Cool. And uh, it seems to work more or less fine. Some bugs there. <laughs> And it's always like that. Like you launch a thing, you find a couple of things that you need to improve. You improve those over time on the same test net. And then, yeah, like everything is stable and you keep working on new features and then kind of go into uh, another iteration. So, Bucky, you mentioned that like at one point, like the test net crashes. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Um, so we, we litter the code with panic calls, which will basically um, cause the software to stop executing. 
And we do those as sanity checks. So there are a number of places in the state machine where we expect some invariant to hold. For instance, the number of coins um, should be static or, you know, only increasing at a given rate. Or, you know, if if there is an entry in the state for this kind of validator about this sort of thing, then there should be an entry about that sort of thing. And so we do these checks. And then if, if the checks don't aren't satisfied, it means there's a bug somewhere in the logic. And so rather than kind of missing that and, and just keep going, uh, we cause the thing to crash so that we can debug and get to the bottom of, of the logical issue. Yeah. But what do you mean make it crash? Are you, you force it to crash? Yeah, there's a command in the in the code that says stop the program. Oh, wow. In, so in Go, it's called panic. And so you, you just type panic. And, you know, it's not something you should you should really do in, in live production software. But certainly for testing, it's a great way to catch bugs uh, sooner than later. Yeah. Is that, a, is that a common feature of testnet development? I'm not sure. No, I don't know. I, it's a common thing in software development. Sure. Fail fast, like, right? I, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to keep in mind that the testnet, any network, is really just a network of, you know, a node running. And so if you have majority, con- like, or if you're the only client on this testnet, then doing that is perfectly fine. But if you have one application that, like, just crashes their clients and the other keeps going, then that might be a problem but less of a problem than if you have two clients that disagree about something. So if you have a consensus bug and you have two different clients running half the network each and they disagree, then you have an accidental fork. And that's a lot harder to clean up than just like crashing and stop producing new blocks. Exactly. Um, but I think it's pretty common that test networks like stop producing new blocks every once in a while. Like just like, oh, something messed up. Testnet is dead. And then, you know, Bugs are fixed. People download the new version of the software. You kind of reboot it and it keeps going from the point where it stopped. One of the other things, so we sort of touched on this earlier, but it was about incentivization on testnets. And I know that you guys had a proposal around incentivization Mm -hmm. to try to get people to come break your testnet. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So we're, so we've been going through these test nets. We've had actually a lot of community engagement, which we're really excited about. But similar to what Ethereum did with their test net before launch, we wanted to really incentivize people to flex all the different features of the state machine and, and try out lots of things and try them out in weird ways and weird patterns and so on. Um, and furthermore, uh, we, we, we also ideally want to be able to incentivize people to, um, attack the network and to, you know, find bugs either in, in the software or in the operational setup of the validators, right? Because a lot of the focus here, um, because we're trying to launch a, de- a decentralized testnet that's, or sorry, a decentralized network that's run by a community of validators, as important as it is to get correct software written, it's also very important that we have competent and highly secure node operators or validator operators, right? And th- these are entities that have to be able to keep a node online in a highly available context, um, with a with a secure private key that is available constantly for signing proposals and blocks, right? And so we would like to be able to incentivize those people beefing up their security uh, kind of on the test nets via rewarding people for being able to to success, successfully attack them. And so that's actually a very difficult thing to do. I'm not sure, you know, exactly to what extent we will be able to do that in the in in a way that is really verifiable. It's hard to verify that, you know, X hacked Y in this particular way. And there are, there are certain things we could do. For instance, we could, we could get someone to say, 
you know, commit to um, saying I'm going to cause someone else's private key to sign this at this height or this time or whatever. And then if they pull that off, then that's pretty convincing. I mean, of course, they could have colluded as well. So so there are issues there. So um, we're still iterating on design for what we might be able to do there. Certainly, we'd like to be able to reward people for doing certain patterns of behavior on the testnet, even if they're not outright adversarial. Um, and we'll consider other options for what we could do to motivate um, adversarial attacks and, and pen testing and so on on the testnet before we move into a, a production release. At the very least, people should probably just have bug bounties on on anything mm-hmm. like Parity has bug bounties on any software we write more or less other than like the marketing website. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think the same goes for test nets that you want to incentivize. If someone actually finds a real bug, then, you know, they should be rewarded. But it's hard when it's not a necessarily a bug in your software, right. but rather like you're saying that if they attack a validator and they, you know, misconfigured something on their server and I was able to steal their key, like that's not... It's not the the project's fault that right. they misconfigured their server. Exactly. So it's, but it's like you still want to make it easy to configure it correctly, and so you you do want to incentivize people doing it the right way. So yeah, I, I can see that being a very hard problem to solve, but an important one. Exactly. So so we're still thinking through what's possible there, um, and and working with the community to to put out better documentation on how to set up secure validators. I mean, it's also not something we want to. Um, explicitly state how to do because there, there's a tremendous number of ways you can set up a secure, highly available system. And, and to some extent, we're looking for, you know, competent um, service providers that can actually do that or that have experience doing that and that will all do it in different ways. You know, we don't want everyone just running a simple box on AWS, for instance. Um, so we'll provide some guidelines and, and we'll work towards figuring out some plan for, um, having some kind of security assessment of those validators to be able to ensure, you know, of course, we're doing security audits and bug bounty as well for the software. If you want to participate in the bug bounty, that's on Hacker One. check it out. Um, but yeah, also to also to, to help the validators themselves figure out how to secure their setup um, uh, and, and potentially against real attacks so we can see what that looks like before going live. So people talk about private and public test nets, like what's the difference between those two things? Yeah, so with, with the birth of Ethereum, the idea kind of emerged that... Um, there would be many Ethereum blockchains, right? Whereas most cryptocurrencies before then, it was kind of assumed there was just one, the kind of public version of it, and then there were some test nets for it. But what started happening with Ethereum was everyone seemed to want to use the Ethereum software for their own independent um, needs beyond just the public cryptocurrency. They wanted to use it as a, as a platform, actually, to develop applications in different kinds of contexts uh, among different communities that were governed and operated by by different entities. And so this notion emerged of kind of many independent, different Ethereum networks that were actually different from the mainnet and different from the official test nets. So, so before uh, people are actually ready to run, say, the, an Ethereum blockchain on their own network in production, they'll run a testnet version of that, which is completely independent from the testnets um, that that the Ethereum community runs like Rinkby and, and Robston and, and Covan. Um, and those are these are just, um, you know, testnets that some organization will run for their own purposes, uh, for their own community, whatever it might be. So when we talk about Tendermint and Tendermint testnets, for instance, there's lots of users of Tendermint around the world that are developing applications on Tendermint for, you know, many, many different use cases. And in each of them will typically have their own testnet run by whatever community of entities um, they're engaged with to actually keep it up and actually operate the network uh, before it's ready to go live. Is that a private 
testnet then. So that would be that would typically be a private testnet because they're not they're not interested in having the public come in and, and spam their their network uh, mm-hmm. by any means. Yeah. I've also heard like projects and companies try to, you know, market that they're running a private testnet right now. And it's just like they're running, it will be eventually be a public blockchain, but they kind of start with a private testnet that's just like their own company running nodes internally to test stuff out. Probably same reason they don't want spammers and everyone trying to break stuff all the time. Um, And then like they're going to go from private testnet to uh, like making that completely public. So you have a public testnet and then after public testnet, you go maintenance. Um, but I mean, I, I don't know, like everyone always runs pub- private testnets internally anyway. So I, I don't see that as a thing that you have to like talk about or announce. Like, yeah, I don't know. Everyone always runs like I have a private testnet on my computer. Like it's not, not a thing that is like something I have to talk about. And one last quote. So this is from an article, which is like, launching a testnet is often considered a bare minimal development in cryptocurrency. What do you think about that? For any worthy project, absolutely. Strongly agree. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Probably many, many testnets. Yeah, exactly. I have one last question. I think we actually have to wrap up now, unfortunately. Can testnets be used for anything besides testing? Interesting question. I, to some extent, by definition, no. Uh, once a once a testnet is being used for something beyond testing, it's effectively no longer a testnet. I don't know if we've seen this happen yet, that a testnet kind of gradually evolves into into a mainnet. It seems... It seems maybe Tezos is doing something like that now. They're, they're in this beta net phase where I believe they've said that um, transactions that occur now on the beta net are going to be carried forward onto the main net. So that will be really interesting to see. Mm. We might do something similar as well where we try to try to evolve um, our test net in, into the main net. But the, the actual nitty gritty details of that are still um, are still undecided. But uh, yeah, that's an interesting problem. I've certainly seen the the idea being thrown around. Um, either that you, like you said, just evolve the whole thing, make it a uh, mainnet, but then how do you justify the token distributions that exist? Right. And it's right. very weird. So then, yeah, maybe you just do a reset of all the all the tokens in you know some way, and then uh, start from there. But arguably, then it's a different no- network. I mm-hmm. don't know. Uh, but I think, I mean, your question, I think it comes from. The fact that a lot of people are now talking about like Ethereum is not scalable enough to be able to run my application. So I kind of deploy it on the testnet and kind of use it there in a, in a sort of intermediate state thing. And it's kind of a little bit odd. Um, and people are talking about bridging, et cetera, et cetera. But I think when people talk about bridging, they usually talk about starting up a completely new network. So what you'd call a side chain or like a application specific blockchain and then bridge that to the mainnet rather than like deploying your application on a testnet and then bridging that because you're still not really in control of the testnet. So it's kind of, I wouldn't do that myself, but you know, if I had to, maybe I would like try to launch a POA network with the community of my users or something. So it's still roughly decentralized and then bridge that. But then in my opinion, it's not a testnet anymore. It's a side chain. Well, thanks for answering that question. And I want to say, Bucky, thanks for joining us. Thank thanks you so for, much for having me. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank yeah, you very much. Good fun. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.